Uh, we're going to be in Revelation uh, this morning and the next couple Sundays. And uh, I don't know if you're like me, the book of Revelation is really scary. Um, I went to graduate school for four and a half years and I'm uh, to, to study the Bible, more or less. And, uh, and I spent a good chunk of my week looking at the Bible and I'm terrified of preaching uh, from the book of Revelation. I know some other Christians that uh, they're not terrified about it at all. They're absolutely obsessed with it. So whether you're terrified of it or you're obsessed with it, uh, you'll see why both extremes exist if you just read through the book. Because here are some of the things that exist in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. You'll find a red dragon. You'll find monsters with multiple heads and horns. You'll find horses with lion's heads. You'll see thunder and lightning. You'll have locusts. You'll have flying angels. And perhaps, uh, strangest of all, at least to us, are talking lambs. I mean, it's this eerie fantasy. So what does this book, Revelation, what does it have to do with Christmas? What does it have to do with the Advent season? Well, everything, actually. I mean, historically, the church does two things at once during Advent. The first thing it does is it looks back at the first coming of Jesus. Things like Mary and Joseph and the manger, you know, that kind of stuff. This kind of stuff right here. The first coming of Jesus. But then you have the second coming of Jesus. That that's what Advent is supposed to do, is that it's culting, cultivating in us this longing for Jesus' second coming. So this year, that's what we're going to focus on, the second coming by spending time in the book of Revelation. So each week, I want to put forth for you a picture, a vision, that's going to engage your imagination. It's going to be a, a picture that you can put into the locket of your heart. That you can pull out and remember when it's time for it. And so the picture today, the picture comes from Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, and the picture is of a coming king. So let's read it together. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written, that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, in the name of which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh... He has name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The word of the Lord. This picture right here, these six verses show us one of the most vivid images we have of Jesus in the scriptures of seeing him as a king. And there's something alluring about kings, isn't there? I mean, think back to the royal weddings which have happened over the last several years. One was of Prince William, the other of Prince Harry. Both of them were these multi-million dollar extravaganza. They were filled with A-list celebrities. They had political figures that you've heard of. And they dominated the news cycles, not just in the UK, but around the world. I mean, during William's wedding especially, there was this other layer of discussion that was taking place more than just all the pomp and circumstance, but you had this speculation of what kind of king he would one day be. Because his grandmother, the queen, was very old, and his father has had this checkered history. 
The thought was maybe William, maybe he would be able to bring not just glamour, but dignity to the crown. So why this fascination in the UK and around the world with the royals? Well, I think part of it is because that we know that the world needs a king. I mean, we see that we're aware that at least on a subconscious level that there's something wrong with the world that needs to be fixed. And so we look at these figures, whether they're the royals or they're political figures, and they're the ones who need to set things right. That These problems are too big for any one individual. It's going to take someone really powerful to do so. But then think about our own individual lives. I mean, we, we're a bit weary of authority figures, aren't we? To say that we need to be kinged. I mean, many of us, we're 21st century Westerners, and we tend to think that all hierarchy, it's wrong in principle. It gets at our ideals of independence and autonomy, especially when it comes to God. But see, we prefer, we prefer this private, self-cultivated spirituality over submitting to someone outside of us. So we're hesitant. We're hesitant to wave the white flag and give up and submit. And it makes sense. I mean, I, I know some of your stories. Some of your stories are that authority figures have been self-aggrandizing. And they've failed to use the authority that they have for those they lead. But the other mistake is to slide back into this isolated self-leadership, and it's wrapped in as much folly as submitting to poor authority figures. And so what we need, what we need is a true king. We need King Jesus. So we're going to look at this passage by looking at his four names, the nature of this king, and then we're going to look at his reign by looking at two images. So let's look at each name. The first one you see there is in verse 11. You see it there? His name is Faithful and true. That's who he is. And unlike many of our leaders that we're accustomed to, Jesus' character is, uh, is impeccable. It's, he's utterly reliable. He's faithful and true. You can always count on him to keep his word. I mean, just think about the gospels. Think about the things he said and how he followed up on them. In Matthew chapter 8, you have this centurion shows up who has this sixth servant that he wants Jesus to heal, and Jesus. Not, without even being in the room, not even being in the house, being a good ways from this servant, just tells the centurion, hey, your servant has been healed. And guess what? He was. Jesus said that Peter would deny him three times. And guess what? Peter did. Jesus said that one of his disciples would betray him, Judas. And guess what? Judas did. Jesus said he was going to suffer and die before he ever got to Calvary. And guess what? That's what he did. Jesus said he's going to raise from the dead. And guess what? That's what he did. See, Jesus always does what he says he's going to do. He's the kind of leader you can trust. And that's why John calls him faithful and true there in verse 11. Isn't that what you really want? I mean, every leader, no matter how well-intentioned, whether it's a, a parent, a coach, a supervisor, a pastor even, they'll fail you. But Jesus is the leader that you can submit to because he's faithful and true. That's the nature of who he is, his king. And look at his second name. The second name in verse 12. It's this unnamed name. So sure, Jesus has disclosed the fullness of all of who he is, all of who God is. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Meaning that if you want to know what God's like, just look at Jesus. 
But Jesus is still a mystery to us. He's this partial enigma, and that's on purpose. Because if you could fully understand him, if I could fully understand him, then he could never surprise us. He could never overwhelm us. He could never astonish us. He could never transcend us. If you could fully understand him, you could control him. See, it's like your mother. Your mother, when she uses your full name, you know, when she uses your full name, it includes your mostly unknown middle name, which, fun fact, Jen and I have the same middle name, Ray. So my mom, when she really wants to get a hold of me, she says, Marshall Ray Wimhoff. When does she use it? It's when she really needs me to do something that I don't want to do. So she's exerting her authority on me. She's disclosing what most people don't know, my middle name. Think about the movies. You have Mission Impossible. You have Ethan Hunt. You've got James Bond. You've got Jason Bourne in the Bourne series. Or you even have a masked Batman. Why? Well, what do they all have in common? Is that They all have in common is they have a secret identity that the outside world does not know about so that they can best accomplish their work. So here Jesus is. He's choosing to only be fully known by himself. So our king is partly hidden from us, and that should heighten our wonder to the one that we submit to. It's the unnamed name. Now look at verse 13. Verse 13, you have the third name in our text, and it's the Word of God. The Word of God has a lot of biblical background, doesn't it? And we've already seen it in the music and even in the liturgy here this morning from John chapter 1, where John says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the Word of God has a richer biblical history than just John 1. It even goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where God creates the heavens and the earth by the mere power of His Word. That's how powerful his words are. We've got a keen interest in powerful words, don't we? That's why we love magical spells. You know, like the ones from Harry Potter. Expelliarmus. You know what that one does? It disarms opponents of their wand. Avada Kedavra. The killing curse. Expecto Patronum. Protects you from the dementors, Right? You're all laughing because I don't know how to say these things. (laughs) I've never watched the movies. I just read them to Audrey, and I can mispronounce them all I wanted. She never know. The movies scare me. I just can't do it, you know. But what you see in our passage is it's a spell of sorts, isn't it? And if you want to look at it from that angle, it's, Jesus, he's judging his enemies with his words. So just like we see in these magical spells, things happen when people say these magic words. Jesus just says his word and it judges his and our enemies. So when Jesus comes with judgment, it's not with vindictiveness. It's not for a lust for conquest. It's to rule on behalf of his subjects. And the people that John's talking to here, they've been persecuted heavily. They've endured injustice after injustice, and now Jesus' words are going to confront these enemies. And brother and sister, you might not be aware of your enemies. Maybe you've learned to live with your enemies, but you have them. They're not Louisville or Tennessee or some other fill-in-the-blank school. Your enemies are Satan, death, and sin. 
And there's coming a day when King Jesus will arrive on the scene and he's going to slay all of your and his enemies by his mere speech. So that means that there's a day coming. There's a future that's being held out to you where you no longer will be tortured by your compulsive sinful nature. That enemy will be slayed. You no longer will be hurt by the sin of others because that enemy will be slayed. You no longer be tempted by Satan because Satan will be slayed. You'll no longer have to fear death or grieve the death of loved ones because that enemy, death, will be slayed. See, the word of God is going to show up and use his words to annihilate your enemies. The word of God. The last one, the last name is King of King and Lord of Lords. I mean... You've got enough just with those first three, right? I mean, you've got word of God, the unnamed names. You've got faithful and true. And John gives us another one. He gives us king of kings and lord of lords. It's the last one. You see it in verse 16. And it might be the most important one because it's the one that the king is actually wearing. And he's wearing it in two places. Do you see it in verse 16? He's wearing this name on his robe and on his thigh. It's like his badge. It's the proof that he's got the authority to go into battle. He's not on this guerrilla mission, but he has the force of heaven behind him. I mean, think about old Westerns. An old Western, when the U.S. Marshal would show up and uncover his badge, he's essentially saying to all the outlaw cowboys who are causing all the trouble, he's saying, I've got the power of the U.S. government behind me. If you mess with me, you've got much bigger opponent coming for you. And Jesus does the same. He's authorized to engage in this battle and it's right, that's right around the corner. And so when he flashes his name, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he's saying that he's got the infinite resources of the creator and sustainer of the universe at his disposal to defeat your enemies in whatever way he sees fit. That's your king. <laughs> that's what he's like. He doesn't need to be voted into office. He doesn't need your approval. He doesn't need you to agree with him. However, if you're going to enjoy his reign, you need to submit to him. See, John, the author of Revelation, he's employing all these names as a way of courting your heart toward that end. See, don't you want this kind of king, the one that's utterly reliable, he's faithful and true? Don't you want a king who's mysterious? He's this unnamed name. Don't you want a king who has and is powerful in his words, the word of God? Don't you want a king who reigns with all authority, the king of kings and lord of lords? That's who Jesus is. But the passage goes further than just describing our coming and future king. It also describes his reign. What's it going to be like when he comes and instead of using names to talk about his reign, I want to talk about two details in the passage. One is this blood-dipped robe, and the other is the army. Look at the blood-dipped robe. Now, if we'd been working our way through this passage like we do other books, of the, if we'd been working our way through the book of Revelation like we do other books, you would find out, you'd have a lot of questions about why Jesus' robes have blood on them. I mean, if you were to read Verses 1 to 10, what you would find is that Jesus is the bridegroom and he's with the bride, the church, at this huge wedding feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's not a battle. And so Jesus goes from a feast to being the king and he's got bloody robes. So where does all this blood come from? 
We'll look at the second half of verse 15. The second half of verse 15, it says, He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And this image, this winepress, goes back to Revelation 14 and Revelation 16. It's this gruesome image of what we should take, and what we should take from it is that Jesus' own blood was the blood that was shed. This blood-dipped robe is evidence that the wrath of God has already been meted out. Jesus conquered not by shedding the blood of others, but by shedding his own blood. And this has massive implications for you and I here this morning. It means that God is for you. Let me say it again. God is for you. Now, you might think he's against you because you've got all this evidence that you don't measure up to his holy standards. You've got your sexual past. You've got your inability to control your tongue. You've got your willingness to spend your money on yourself rather than give it to the poor. You've got this evidence that you give preferential treatment to those who are beautiful and powerful. And you know you're probably right. And you suppose that God is therefore against you because of your evidence. Well, in some ways he is. But he's provided a surefire way for you to avoid his judgment. And it's by putting your faith in the one whose robes are dipped in blood. See, Jesus shed his own blood so that you don't have to shed yours. And that's the good news of the Christian faith. That's the good news of Christmas, that Jesus came as a baby, he died as a substitute, and he's coming as a king of the universe one day. The blood dip robe. Did you see the army in verse 14? This army doesn't look like much of an army to me. They wear no armor, for one. They just have fine linen. It's the same outfit they had on when they were sitting at the feast. So they go from a feast to battle and don't change clothes. Look at their linen. It's pure white, whereas the king has a bloody robe on. Look what kind of weapons they have. They have none. Just the king. The king's got a sword coming out of his mouth. Notice where they're at. They're not alongside of the king. They're behind him because the king is riding out front. And if you kept reading chapter 19, you'd find out that no battle ever really takes place. Now, the armies of the enemy gather around this, this, this rider on a white horse with a blood-dip robe and with this army with people with white linen and no, and, and, and no weapons. That, 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 that gathering does happen. But the armies of the enemy, they go to nothing when the king merely lifts out his sword. And they're vanquished. See, your king has already won the battle. So it means that you've got a lot to look forward to. You're never going to receive bad news again. I mean, this Palestine-Israel conflict, is, it's over. This Russia-Ukraine debacle is over. There's no more opiate epidemic. There's no more suicide. There's no more racial injustice. There's no more gender confusion. And won't that be wonderful? All because the king has showed up. And do you know what your role is in bringing this whole victory about? It's just to get behind the king who gets bloody so that you can stay white. 
It's to get behind the king who carries a weapon and you carry none. It's to let him ride out in front so that you can be safe in the back. Doesn't that sound like a good gig? Where you can be in an army and win and you don't have to fight? I mean, sign me up for that. See, Jesus doesn't need your help. Now, let me me be clear. Not having to fight in the battle doesn't paralyze your activity. It just stimulates it. It just frees you to live your life in gratitude for what God's done for us. It motivates you to love others and invite them to be a part of an army that doesn't have to fight, but still wins all because of the gracious, powerful rule of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So brother and sister, this Christmas season, may we do just that. May we sing his praise and may we love our neighbors as we await our coming king. Let's pray. Well, Father, this image this of you riding a white horse, <laughs> of your blood-dipped robes, of your names, the word of God, the unnamed name, the faithful and true, the king of kings and lord of lords, and us riding behind you, letting you win on our behalf. Oh, Lord, I pray that this message would free us this Christmas season. And Lord, I pray it would give us great hope as we face our, our own sinful nature, as we, our, our, as we have to deal with the reality of death, as we have to be, deal with the reality of Satan too. Lord, may we know a day is coming where all this will be no more. We pray these things in your name. Amen.